0: going everybody welcome to another episode of Nerd Your Enthusiasm um, and I'm here with Steve Nick Hello and Peyton once again how's it going um, how are y'all doing what have you guys been up to lately
1: surviving yeah
0: surviving I would say <laughs> surviving to Rona yeah um, so today uh, we're actually going to be doing a, a podcast about Hollywood Royale. Uh, we had to take about a week off from the podcast just to, we had a few hiccups last weekend with scheduling, but we wanted to do it this, this week. Initially, we had started out with, I think it was 25 films each, and we whittled it down because uh, that was too ridiculous. And we're going to do 10 films each. So there's four of us. 40 films and so um steve tell them what the rules are about this specific hollywood royale it's kind of similar to what we did with nostalgia but now we have a few extra things so go ahead
1: right so the format is is not entirely that changed from what when we did the uh, game of the generation royale and the best video game series royale Uh, basically we're going to split the series into two podcast episodes the first one which you are hearing now we're going to we each chose 10 personal films the only condition was that they uh for the film that you chose it had to be a singular film so it can you you can't just pick lord of the rings and expect that to fill one slot you had to pick one entry in the trilogy Um, And I wanted to restrict basically how many films you can pick for each director on the same list. So if you wanted to pick four Spielberg films, no good, sir. You need to have a good variety so that we can have a diverse list when the time comes to pit them against each other in the tournament bracket. So we limited to two of the same director uh, for each list so the outside of that there was no other restrictions uh these are our personal picks the purpose of this episode is to explain why we chose them why they are important to us on an individual basis or if you want to argue why it they are important in the broad sense of the uh filmmaking medium so it's up to you how you want to uh pitch your film and why it deserves to do well in the tournament bracket, uh, in the following episode.
0: Perfect. So, uh, if anyone else, does anyone else want to go first? Any takers as to no? Okay. I'll go first then.
1: Um, so, Oh yeah. So I'll go first. first, And then I will go second. Yeah. Yeah. I will go second. Uh, Nick, did you want to go third? Yeah, I can take third. Okay, and then Peyton will take fourth, and then we will just, you know, go around the same way.
0: Yeah, yeah that's awesome. good. and just to oh, let you I- know, these are in no particular order. My ten, my the first film I'm about to mention at number ten does not necessarily mean this is my least favorite of the bunch. It just means I can probably argue it the best, or it, it, there's no attachment to the number of. Yeah, I don't find it like it's a shit film. Um, so. My first on the list here is Arrival. Uh, for those of you who have not seen this movie, I'm not sure if have if any of you have seen this movie, but I know Steve has. But other than that, um, Arrival is, at face value, an invasion movie, right? These aliens come to Earth, but they don't know exactly why they're there or what the purpose of it is. At a deeper level, this film talks about xenophobia It talks about the struggles of losing a child for some parts of it. It talks about language and and not understanding others. And for example, it kind of dials back into xenophobia, where it's like, you know, this person's speaking in different languages than me. Can we really trust them? And things of that nature. Things that you may have seen in multiple other films, but they do it in such a... A science fiction way, it makes it really cool. And language is a huge part of this versus some of the other films, because the aliens in this film, they come into these like uh, ellipse style, like spaceships. And there's about eight or nine of them around the world. And I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. And there will be spoils more than welcome to be spoils, but I won't spoil it for those who haven't seen this film. Um, language. And trust, and not being xenophobic, is a very strong message in this film. And whether it be you know the parts where the military kind of goes a wall, some some people in the military go a wall and want to destroy the aliens, or whatever it may be, it's such a very it's not a very complex film. It's not like Inception or anything like that. Um, and I think Jeremy Renner's in it, and. Who's the is it, I No, it's not Isla Fisher. It's the girl who everyone confuses for Isla Fisher.
2: She's the one from uh, Superman. Yes. Right? Yes. She was uh, Lois Lane in uh, Man of Steel.
0: Um, but the long and short of it is great film and very, very deep uh, metaphorical ties to xenophobia and Amy Adams. Amy Adams. Adams. Thank yeah, you. Um Definitely recommend you would go see it. And if you're not like, like, completely like, oh my God, that's what that means. And it's just a mind blowing movie. That's my piece about that film.
1: That's a very good pick. Cool. All right my number 10 although i would probably say it is ordered and i did cross-source a bit of words from some online reviews with my own but here we go my number 10 is lost in translation a beautiful sadness slowly but surely permeates sophia coppola's sophomore feature a portrait of two lost souls yearning for purpose and meaningful connection bob and charlotte are at, at an impasse in their lives where they mutually feel neglected by loved ones and disorientated by the greater outside war- world. Bob is a fading Hollywood actor in A Midlife Crisis, who is played by Bill M- Murray. Ch- uh, Charlotte is played by Scarlett Johansson, who is a young woman at- who is apprehensive about her future. Finding an odd solace and familiar familiarity in their shared struggle, they unexpectedly encounter a blossoming intimacy that reignites their curiosity of life and sense of belonging. They both recognize something in their connection achingly pure that transcends physical consummations and verbose declarations of affection. In the small intimate moments of shared silence and quiet reflection lies something authentic and ceaseless about the human experience. The lingering feeling of displacement and the insatiable burning to belong. Coppola's patient and acute sensitivity to loneliness and isolation draws these habitually veiled emotions to the foreground through her signature atmospheric shoegaze score and pastel color palette. The audience is not privy to Bob's final whisper in in one of the last scenes of the film where he whispers to Charlotte something that will always exist only between them. Words that frame a transient yet ethereal life altering experience. They will probably never see each other again, but it doesn't matter because they know that they've given each other exactly what the other needed to move forward into the uncertain future. So outside of what I just read, um, Lost in Translation is, I have in my personal list of like favorite movies ever, I have like this trilogy of romantic movies that kind of dive deep into the intimacy of romance and the disconnect between two lovers and her is another film that is uh very similar to this because the both directors actually were in in a relationship with each other like over 10 years ago and each of their romantic films lost in translation and her was a response to the other (laughs) director and why and from their perspective why their relationship crumbled and i found that to be pretty fucking mind-blowing in a way. Um, And I don't know, this movie just, it says so much with saying so little, it's just so good. I love when movies are that downright simplistic in their verbiage and like just, it's just the little moments that count. And I, I feel like Lost in Translation is like the apex of that type of mood that you want to invoke in a romantic film. Something that's not grandiose or dramatic, and I think that's why I love it so much, and that's why I picked it.
0: Cool. And actually both those movies have Scarlett Johansson in it.
1: Exactly.
0: Uh huh. I didn't. Yeah, so, you know, who's the right. director of uh, of Lost in Translation?
1: Uh, Sophia Coppola, so Francis uh,
0: Ford Coppola's daughter.
1: Exactly.
2: Okay. Yeah. All right. So, let's see. My number ten pick is um, a really good movie if you're into um, if you're into sports um, okay. Field of Dreams um, it stars Kevin Costner um, it has Ray Liotta in it James Earl Jones um, a pretty eclectic uh, cast of characters um, it, it follows uh, Kevin Costner's character his name is Ray Kinsella and he he uh, how do I explain it? So he he's having like a transitional period, like a midlife crisis uh, when it comes to his father that just passed away. And his father, if I remember correctly, was the um, one of the catchers on the 1919 uh, Chicago White Sox, or they called them the infamous Black Sox because they cheated during the World Series. Um, and he has this vision um, where he lives in Iowa. He's a corn, uh, corn farmer. He um, decides to build this baseball field there in the field um, that he tends to. And it becomes this like kind of a cultural significance to the um, to the game of baseball. And when he starts building it and stuff, coming out of the cornfield are the original... Players from the 1919 Chicago White Sox. So Ray Liotta plays Shoeless Joe Jackson, and he um, he brings all the other players out. James Earl Jones plays a character by the name of Mark Tanner, if I remember correctly, um, or Terrence Mann, and uh, he was a young boy when the Chicago White Sox were playing during that. So, um, it's, it's a very interesting take on the love of the game of baseball. And you also get kind of a sentimental feel, um, for people like myself who grew up playing catch and stuff with your father and stuff like that. And you're trying to understand, uh, kind of like grief, um, and dealing with that, as far as like if you you know you lose a loved one and that kind of stuff. Hmm. So that's why I chose it at number ten. Plus, it's it's become kind of a cultural phenomenon too with uh, modern day baseball and stuff like that.
0: Hmm. Interesting. All of our, of our all of our first uh, picks here so far have been ones that we kind of relate to and you know you and me steven about communication the uh nix is understanding let's see what let's see what peyton's is gonna be
3: <laughs> you all hear me
0: okay yes loud and clear right.
3: just did another mic check um so my pick for this round was 12 angry men um it came out back in the 50s um it it's really no way for me to explain this without spoiling a bit of it, but it is such an old movie, and it's kind of like a plot that it, I don't think it's really going to sour anybody by me saying it. But essentially, um, it's a there's a trial where I believe there's a, if I recall correctly, it's been a while for me, but there's a young man who's killed his father, I think, and um, and so the judge tells him, you know, without a reasonable doubt, you know, you need to you need to pick. It's guilty not guilty and you know they go into the room and they they all vote immediately and there's just one guy who voted not guilty everybody else thought it was unanimous and this frustrates a lot of the uh jurors in the room they don't go by their names at all they they have like they call them numbers like jury 3 jury 7 whatever anyway jurors sorry I meant to say anyway so you find out that some of the jury members are, like, frustrated. They just want to get home. Another one has a baseball game to catch. And it's, like, trivial to them how much this this kid who's been allegedly charged with killing his father is, uh, you know, really is to them. Like, you know, his life is really in their hands. And one by one, the guy who said not guilty in the beginning starts to convince other people of this their, their original testimony that we as the audience didn't get to see. But... You know, they start to really come to terms with the fact that they may have been a little bit too hasty in their original vote. And eventually, after long discussion and deliberation, after emotional discussions they had, because they they relate to what's been going on in certain ways, they eventually come to a conclusion themselves that they all agree on at the very end. (laughs) And the reason why I chose this film was because, for me personally, it relates to me... Um, the topic of exoneration and the you know I, I work in forensics and so I think that is a very you know you have a duty as a jury member to be 100% convinced about whatever selection you ever vote in and, and as most as important as convictions are in, in rightful appropriate circumstances so are exonerations I mean you don't want to be falsely accused of anything and I think that's that's why I picked that movie. I really enjoyed it. I encourage anybody else to watch it if they ever have time. It was a good one for me.
2: That's a really good film. I've that's never really seen one. it. Um, yeah,
3: yeah. I, yeah, like like I said, it, it it's very old. It's very old. It's from the fifties, I think. So
0: I've seen it. I've seen a few movies on, on Nick's list that are that are older as well. Um, okay, so I started with Arrival. Let's go a little bit different with this next pick um, was it I'm not sure if it was last summer it must have been last year at some point uh, I went to one of the previous one of the at least one of the last rather uh, movies I saw in the theater and Nick saw this movie with me it was nineteen seventeen completely such a such a great story by itself. And then you add not just the story but the way it's filmed, which is quote unquote one shot. Of course they have you know little fade ins and outs when you can definitely see that was you know a kind of seamless transition. But to the to the movie goer it's one shot. And they follow these um two boys. Well yeah essentially they are boys uh in world war one and the the germans have or the i guess would they be the Germans at this point, I guess not uh, yeah, yeah the, germans, the germans let's call them the germans uh the Germans at this point are retreating um from the from the front line because well're they're, they're retreating, and so there's this one uh general he's a he's a general, correct Benedict Cumberbatch in that movie.
2: I think so. Yeah. Let's
0: say he's a general uh, in the British Army, and he he's advancing. He's chasing these people, these Germans, um, the German army, just so that way he can you know finish them off and, and win the war. Uh, what he doesn't realize is that he's chasing them back. So like it's it's a tactical retreat on the Germans' part. They're backing off so that way they can have their artillery just completely smash his regiment and and really damage the the american uh not the american the british uh forces and um so these two boys have to be sent out across enemy lines where most of which uh, you know there's been definite uh you know clearing out but they're going so much later after the forces have gone through that the Germans have kind of swept in again to some degree. I don't think we see too many German forces. There's a few times in the movie with the sniper and I think the um, there's a a plane scene in that movie where you see the Germans and I think think there's also a burning town, but that's when they're really close to the where the, uh, the boys have to get, um, the long and the short of it is it's a great war movie. Uh, not many films have such a personal story attached to world war one. Uh, of course, you know, there's movies such as, you know, um, save a private Ryan for world war two, where the squad has to go and essentially save, uh, private Ryan. But, um, Nineteen Seventeen, other than just the story, has some of the most amazing visuals. The flares scene, when the Germans are popping flares, and one of the boys is essentially having to hide from the Germans and stay out of the eyes of the flares, and it's just the way the light goes over this ruined city. He has to kind of creep through. It reminds me of. It doesn't. There's nothing it really reminds me of, but it's just so like crazy i kind of compared it to um either journey or abzu for a film not sure if either of you have played those games
1: oh that's a very interesting comparison yeah but
2: i I, I could see the journey yeah aspect where they like the light like there's very
0: distinct parts of the film that have color palettes and and art pieces attributed to them even where it's like you know the green of the initial area where the where the plane is or you know even the music at the end where he you know it just fell into the river and one of the boys gets out of the river and he hears this this one kid singing about i think it's a he's going home to see his father and it's it's essentially the one that's in the trailer and it's beautiful when he just kind of walks up and sits down he's just like i miss the people i was looking for and then of course he's sitting around all the people he was looking for but then he has to run and uh, go find the general to tell him to stop the attack because the germans are going to destroy them uh i could go on further at this point but i think if you haven't seen 1917 definitely a great watch and that's why i picked it
1: For my number, okay, go for
2: it. No, no, no. Just really good film.
1: Yeah. All right. For my number nine spot, on an overall scale, The Matrix is the biggest leap in the science fiction genre since Stanley Kubrick's 2001 The Space Odyssey. However, more importantly, it brought the world Keanu Reeves. So I rest my case. That's it. Okay.
0: Easy and simple. (laughs) That's super simple. On are that, are you one. sure that's his first film,
1: steven No, it's not. But it's it, not. it it brought him <laughs> into the public spotlight, and yeah.
0: What about Bill and Ted? <laughs> I'm just saying. Okay. Action, yeah,
1: just in general. Like as far as I think, from fandom, like,
0: Point Break. Classic. <laughs> Point Break was yeah. way before that. Speed yeah. was before
1: Matrix. Okay. Sure. Sure. But yeah, okay. I. I I think it's made him into that icon that everyone loves him for. So that's it.
2: Cool. So kind of following uh, Steve's there with Kubrick, uh, my number nine is uh, Full Metal Jacket. And that was Kubrick's last film. Or, yeah, I think it was his last film that he directed. Um, And it follows... uh, it, It primarily follows two um, recruits at Paris Island, um, who are going into the Marine Corps in the um, 1960s during the Vietnam war. It follows two, kind of follows two Marines, Joker and pile. And it, it really shows a, um, it shows a look into the process of going through basic training through you know all of that stuff to become a marine and then they go to vietnam um it has uh, matthew modine plays joker it's got arlie Ermey who's passed away but he plays the gunnery sergeant he was a gunnery sergeant in real life um and it it shows a it shows an interesting version of vietnam when they get to that part where they go over to Vietnam during the Tet offensive and stuff like that. And um, for any and all that haven't seen that, I'm not going to spoil too much of it, but it's a, a very good war film and it has a lot of different um, film film techniques and shots that you could even look back to 1917 and some of Kubrick's earlier films and stuff of that nature. So overall, overall, a very well-rounded, uh, war movie. So that's why I picked it at number nine. Great.
3: Love that movie.
2: Love that movie. Really good one.
3: Crazy how it like shifts gears, you know, at that, that, certain spots. I've only yeah. seen it
0: up to the point where the guy says full metal jacket.
3: It's, it's almost like a whole nother movie after that.
2: Yeah. So- it's yeah. it's really like a two parter, like yeah. how they how they break it up. Crazy.
3: Um, follow up with that. <laughs> my, <laughs> my number nine was The Breakfast Club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Breakfast Club. Not a whole bunch to to say about this movie. What? But one of the reasons that I really liked it was um was because uh i guess to go into a little bit of the plot here um there there's these high schoolers and for whatever reason they all get detention at the same time and not really hardly any of them even really know each other because they have so many differences like one may be a jock one of them's a nerd another one's like kind of like a like a introverted person so they don't really know anybody anyway and while they're in detention like you know of course some of them harass each other another couple of them will talk and find out more about each other and eventually as time goes on and they share stories or in their struggles as being a high schooler is you know uh, they find out that they actually have a lot more in common than they thought in the beginning and um, it's my interpretation at the end of it that you know uh, you know a lot of them remain friends but before they even went to detention they they had like no idea about each other or even resented each other. And uh it's it's like it's got a lot of good comedy in it too. Um but I think the cool theme of it was that, you know, these these high schoolers realized they had a lot more in common than they ever thought they did in the beginning. Um I I enjoyed the movie. I think it's uh it's like a really casual going movie. Um nothing too like nothing too I guess Sophisticated, you know, it's a very easygoing theme of you know stories they share together and experience, and all of a sudden become more friends with each other than they were before.
1: Yeah, that's one that definitely is going to be on my list to watch because it's. I've heard some of the. Yeah, it's it's yeah. great. It's great.
2: Yeah, it's definitely one to check out. All right.
1: Would you say it, just briefly, it, it's kind of comparable to the Dead Poet Society. Kind of, or am I? Uh, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't go down that. Oh, okay. I
0: yeah, put, put it down the lane of kind of Fer- Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but different. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. okay yeah.
0: Or like um. It's it's closest really not even close <laughs> but it's closest related to that.
2: Like sixteen candles or something oh, yeah. of that oh, nature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've seen sixteen
1: candles. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha.
0: So. This film was shot in twenty. Well, it came out in twenty fifteen. It's an mm-hmm. action thriller film, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, I don't know how to fucking what's this? How do you pronounce that? Villa
1: Villa. Nueva. Villeneuve. I don't know Villeneuve. The Villeneuve.
0: No, uh, no, no. 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 We're all fucking it up. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. But long story short, it's a French director. Uh, he's making the new Dune film. And this movie has three powerhouse actors in it. Emily Blunt, Josh Brolin, and (laughs) Benicio Del Toro. Uh, Sicario is my next pick. And um, if you haven't seen this film, you really should. Because it's just, A, it's just a great action flick if you don't like it for anything else. Uh, But essentially, the film follows uh, Emily Blunt's character who works for the FBI. And she's enlisted in this uh, government task force to essentially bring down a big drug cartel. Uh, And the the first scene kind of reminds me of the first scene of Hurt Locker uh, to some degree, which... I'm, I didn't put on this list because I think Sicario has a a bit more story to it, um, but Sicario is is, is kind of like a it is like a war film versus just like a FBI espionage or FBI kind of you know action film. It's a lot like a war film because it's essentially every scenario they're in is, is like a little war, um, whether it's the border scene where they're coming back from Mexico and they notice that there's some, some members of the drug cartel, two cars away from them. And it's just very tense. And this whole thing, they're like, get out of the car. It also has uh, the guy from burn notice in it. What's his name? Uh, I can't remember. He's pretty good in it as well. I've never seen the second one, but the first one, fantastic film. Uh, And the end scene is just so so brutal whether when, he, when it it's essentially starts with a cop stop uh, cop stopping some some person in a car and ends with a silencer at a dinner table uh that's all i'm gonna say if you've never seen the movie that scene is just like he just it doesn't even pan away from medias del toro during that scene it's just like okay well you made your decision dead they're all dead <laughs> um yeah. Other than that, Josh Brolin's really great in the film. He plays the uh, the handler. He's kind of like the CIA guy in this scenario. Um, what's the guy from uh, Black Ops, the first Black Ops, CIA guy with the shades, Nick uh,
1: Hudson. Uh, Hudson. Hudson. Yeah. Kind of reminds yeah, me of Hudson, yeah, Hudson, but
0: but more more character has more characteristics to him. And then obviously obviously the 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 reason you come there, Benicio del Toro. And Emily Blunt. Uh, Emily Blunt's more of the, um, you know, the the good, the the honorable good person. And this and the Sicario, which stands for Hitman, um, is Benicio, and he's kind of like the chaotic, the chaotic good. I would I would say. Um, and he also there's a revenge tale in this that you don't really understand until you get to the end of the film. That's very, very prevalent. That's all I'll say. Uh who hasn't seen this film? It looks like we all have seen it. Okay. Enough said. Go ahead, Steve.
1: <laughs> Alright. This is what my number eighth pick? Correct. Okay. My number eighth pick is Taxi Driver. I find it strange that this movie is popular, but for the wrong reasons, maybe. Some people are quoting it, and they always have this next to Goodfellas and The Sopranos in their collection of movies. I think a lot of people like it for the wrong reasons. They like the violence and the guns and Robert De Niro. But for me, this is the quintessential art house film, ambiguous in its meaning, a meandering story with no plot in sight a protagonist that has more psychological disorders than Edward Norton in Fight Club. (laughs) But I'm not giving these folk enough credit because they feel just as lonely as Travis Bickle, and this movie offers some sort of escape into a fantasy world where they can take their frustrations out in. The simple but exceptionally challenging mission that Taxi Driver accomplishes is making Travis Bickle a fully formed, unique, polarizing, and altogether fascinating character. Characters like Travis Bickle aren't written very often, and when they do pop up, for example, Christian Bale in American Psycho, Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler, the film that surrounds them is usually less interesting than the character. With, te- with Taxi Driver, the movie itself is an amigration of Travis. They are fully intertwined and they illuminate each other in ways that only great films can do. All in all, I think this is Scorsese's best film um, in his entire filmography and it was a clear inspiration for the recent Joker film that just came out last year Um, it's definitely a film that tackles mental illness um, but it does so in the lens of this sort of like displacement of the ego and that's why I love it so much nice
2: (laughs) Uh, let's see my number. What are we at? Number eight. My number eight pick, uh, is it, it, it's what a lot of veterans, uh, it's another war film. A lot of veterans have said it is the closest thing that a civilian will ever come to witnessing what real combat is like. And that is, uh, Steven Spielberg's, uh, directed saving private Ryan. Um, the reason I picked it, number one, it my grandfather was in the D-Day invasion, so being able to see and witness a adaptation of what he witnessed firsthand um, gave me a better understanding and grounding to what his experiences were. And not only to me, but a lot of other people that have seen the film, they could understand what their dad or their grandparents or their father, you know, they what they went through. Um, overall, the way it's shot um, firsthand, uh, most of it with running cams, some on uh, running tracks. Uh, it follows a, a group of uh, a ranger company that is set out on this kind of a – somewhat top secret mission at the time um to go rescue a private in the 101st airborne named private ryan who his two brothers were killed in combat in other various theaters during world war ii and that kind of goes in to a stop-loss policy that the military has where they now no longer have siblings Serve together, they break them up um, because they didn't want entire families to be wiped out. Meaning, like a mother and father have to deal with, you know, oh, all four son, four of your sons have been killed, um, which happened a couple of times in World War II. Um, so, yeah, overall, it's a it's a an extremely gritty um, interpretation of war and has some of the best combat scenes I think out of any type of war movie that's been ever made so that's why I put it at number 8 there
3: man that is a fantastic choice too That I really like how you referenced how veterans have come out and said like you know watching the very first part of that movie was very traumatic for them like yeah. how, how much it really related to them I, I love that movie um, my my number 8 is John Carpenter's Halloween, the 1978 movie, not the uh, one that came out in what, 2018, I believe, but the original, the very first Halloween. Um, I picked that for multiple reasons. Uh, I definitely love the Halloween series, but I think one of the key things that are really cool about the series is how much it was a pioneer to a lot of supernatural or... Uh, Horrific slasher films, like you know, you have the. I'm not going to claim that it was the inspiration, but you definitely saw the uptick of Friday the Thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street, etc. And uh, one of the cool things about this movie, The First Halloween, is that this is one of the this is one of the greatest movies of that time where you had a strong female lead and a hero, and you know, before this movie, you had a lot of helpless uh woman victims and Lori Stroud is uh uh that's her name right I think it is. yes
0: I think you're right
3: yeah I think I think it's yeah, Lori Stroud not yeah, the she, actress name but the uh <laughs> right the, Jamie Lee Curtis is the actress anyway right. her character you know rises above her fear and like confronts it and while she does have help from Dr. Loomis you know she is she's obviously a badass um also, another cool thing about this movie is you find out oh, over time Michael is no longer simply a man; he's a concept. He's essentially the concept of evil itself, and battling with battling with the evil itself is uh, the real the real war in this movie, and as as well as its sequels too. Um, I, I really like love the culture impact though of, of how much it's like put so much cultural impact on halloween the the time of the year itself and also kind of like the slasher film genre so that's why i picked that one
0: very nice
1: very good pick
0: yeah it's it's a solid solid pick i have a question for you gentlemen Mm -hmm. um would you ever want to see wolverine go against batman because my next pick gives us just that, except for not really. Um, (laughs) uh, This next film that has three parts, the pledge, the turn, and of course, the prestige. Uh, The prestige is a great, great film. If it's not just about magic, uh, which has it, it's they take magic to another level in this. They actually it's not really just magic. It's actual science. Like they take science. They don't explain how the science is done. Uh, but um, there's, you know, a lot of parts where, and I will, not I, I'm not, I, I don't want to spoil it for this one in particular, but there's a certain trick that uh, Hugh Jackman's character does uh, that involves him disappearing and reappearing in a different place. Okay. Uh, he gets the idea from, when he goes to meet David Bowie's character in the film, which is Nikola Tesla. And he, Tesla has been working on, of course, the Tesla, uh, what's the, um, It's his machine essentially that that generates electricity. And he's able to make things disappear, but he doesn't know where they ever reappear. Uh, And and it kind of goes into the moral, it it takes that, and then goes into the morality of how far is too far to get to become successful because on the opposite side of that coin is Christian Bale's character. They are, they start out actually as partner magicians and then have a falling out. And then they become head to head bull, like Ford versus Ferrari, which actually Christian Bale's in that movie as well. Um, you know, essentially at complete odds they hate each other they want the other person to lose and they want to be the best magician and christian bale's character um is more of the you know mindset of i want to be i want to be the best magician whatever cost and same thing for hugh jackman but hugh's character he he takes the he doesn't take the moral high ground. He, he has a lot of, you know, undercutting of, of Christian Bale's character. And then of course you have Michael Caine. And again, this is another film with, uh, Andy circus is in the film. Completely forgot about that. Uh, David Bowie is previously mentioned and also Scarlett Johansson, another Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson film. Uh, she plays the assistant of the great Danton, which is, uh, Hugh Jackman's character. Correct
1: yeah that's correct okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but other than that uh, and of course the director is Christopher Nolan um, famous for you know uh, Inception um, and, and a wide variety of uh, the th- th- bat, you know, Batman that's why I brought it up um, yeah and the new Tenet film you know, if you haven't seen any of his films, what are you doing? Secondly, go watch this film. Because uh, it's it's a revenge tale and the the twist at the end is like, oh, okay. They didn't just make him disappear. There's a little bit of uh um serious matter of a morbid truth behind Morbid truth for sure reminds me of uh some shit from mortal Kombat if you know what i'm talking (laughs) about um but yeah go see this Uh, film that's why i picked it
1: all right that's a good pick i think that would be like in my top three nolan films definitely um all right for my pick When you're an asshole, you lose your girlfriend. When you lose your girlfriend, you get drunk at Harvard. When you get drunk at Harvard, you rant on the internet. When you rant on the internet, you make facemash.com. When you make facemash.com, you crash the system. When the system crashes, twins that rogue crew ask for your help. You hate crew. When you hate crew, you steal their idea. When you steal their idea, it becomes big. When it becomes big, you become more of an asshole. When you become more of an asshole, you lose your friends. When you lose your friends, you get sued. When you get sued, you lose millions of dollars. When you lose millions of dollars, you try friending that ex-girlfriend on Facebook. Don't be an asshole, or else you might unintentionally create a society that goes against the mission statement of your multi-billion dollar corporation. But maybe that's the point to be an asshole. And that's the social network.
3: I He didn't even <laughs> say
1: anything about aliens. Bravo, Bravo. Or sentient beings, <laughs> or, you know... Exactly. No, but, but outside of that, the social network is, I think, Fincher's... I mean, I'm not too well-versed in David Fincher's uh, list of films that he's crafted and directed, but... Honestly, the one thing that just stands out to me about this film is Trent Reznor's soundtrack. By far the best musical score of, like, the past 10 years. It is insane how how far he goes to permeate the anxiety while we have all these fucking assholes trying to be ambitious and, you know, dictate how society is going to ultimately be managed by their systems. But, yeah, The Social Network, man. Such a film. I think at at one point that movie kind of just makes you want to be as ambitious as Mark Zuckerberg and make your own app or company and become more of an asshole yourself, I guess. Don't listen to him, ladies and gentlemen. He only picked this movie to plug Nine Inch Nails. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you fucking got me, you motherfucker. <laughs> Good Excellent. choice. I like. I love that
2: movie. Excellent pick. You know, nothing like getting zucked on a weekend. Yeah. Right. Um. So yeah, my number seven uh, pick is actually perfect for right now because we're coming up on Halloween, and it's the original from 1980, John Carpenter's The Fog. Uh, they made a really harsh remake of this movie. I think it was like in 2004 or 2005, and it wasn't that good. But the original is as far as for a movie to watch on Halloween night. It is probably up there with like the in the top three for me.
0: Yeah, at least I'm just going to but, in. I'll stop Uh the fog. I saw the trailer today. It gave me vibes of like Night of the Walking Dead and The Thing.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, and here's here's the beauty about this film you don't have like I've seen it a couple of times fully through it. It has Jamie Lee Curtis in it. Cause John Carpenter really liked her as an actress had her, I th- um, had her in a, a couple of his movies, including Halloween, which we had just talked about. Um, but it's really the opening sequence of that movie. Um, it's about a 10 minute long little monologue um the the actor is John Houseman, he's playing Mr. Mockin, who is a old fisherman. And the town of Antonio Bay, California, the fictitious town of Antonio Bay, is getting ready to celebrate their centennial. And he's telling this ghost story to a group of Boy Scouts. And it's it's late at night, and just the way that it was shot, the sound, his voice, you could literally black out your living room, put this thing on, crank up the volume. And that first 10 minutes, you will be like the hair will be standing on the back of your neck by the end of it. Um, It is probably one of my favorite uh, suspenseful slash scary scenes out of a movie. Um, Ultimately the, this fog rolls into this town and people start dying. It's like a paranormal type of thing. There's like, these zombie-esque kind of leper people that have leprosy that were supposedly shipwrecked there a hundred years ago. And it's a, it's, it's one of those, you know, kind of campy horror movies for the eighties, but it, it, that, that first scene is what really does it. And that's why I put it at number seven.
3: Man, I'm definitely going to watch that then on Halloween. That sounds yeah. fun. I do it every year. <laughs> That sounds fun heck yeah another john carpenter on the on the list oh, yeah. oh yes all right so my next one um is black swan which is an aaron aronofsky's uh, uh project or produ- production david and darren, darren darren aronofsky sorry uh And, of course, he's not the most mainstream uh, producer (laughs) or or director. So many people may or may not have seen a lot of his films. Uh, I think me and Steve have watched a a few of them together. Um, Black Swan has definitely got uh, – drugs were harmed in the making of this project. Um, Drugs were harmed? Drugs were harmed. uh, I really liked uh, one critic who said, quote, a nightmarish quality – where is it? I mean, just read it directly. Uh, nightmarish quality of a dancer consumed by her desire to dance. And I think that really kind of puts the whole movie into one easy ca- uh, summarization. Where are our main character it, who's very passionate about being this ballet dancer on this really big project, uh, this really big show. And she lives with an overprotective mother. And so she's kind of got a lot of naivety to her. And so she's kind of going to the big the big shows, you know, like or she's trying to make it to the big, the big times. And, uh, so with her having a lot of naivety and she starts branching out and experiencing a lot of things that she didn't ever get exposed to, uh, you get to see it's a little bit quick for her and she's a little bit unsuspecting of like, uh, of other motives of other characters. There's this one character in the movie called Lily don't want to really go into too much depth on it because this movie is pretty, it's got a lot of cues. It's got a lot of cues. It's got a lot of underlying, uh, sim- symbolism going on, but essentially, uh, she eventually becomes very, very competitive with wanting to be like the main role on this, on this show and stuff starts getting pretty weird, pretty quick. Um, in, in the end you get you get a very symbolic finish and it it's obviously the the show that she's participating on it is uh, geared towards the title, the Swan. So um, things get really weird, really competitive uh, and by the end you' you're kind of you're kind of like sitting there going, whoa, did, did that really just happen? What What the heck did I just watch? And you may even, like I did, watch it a second time just to catch all the stuff that you may have missed out in the first. Uh, it's It's one of those movies that you think about for sure, and uh, that's why I picked it. I like it.
0: Okay,
1: such a good movie. Uh, yeah,
0: that is that. I've never seen that movie.
1: Um, Very symbolic, um, metaphor heavy. I mean, what
0: other films has David David Aronofsky done?
1: The Fountain, okay, Requiem of a Dream, um, Pie, which was his first venture, um, and Noah, and Mother. Noah, the, right. Noah right. the movie with uh, – yep. um,
0: what's – who um, –
3: Russell Crowe?
1: Russell Crowe. Crow. 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 Speaking uh, of... Uh, speaking of... Way longer
3: than Speaking of have. Russell Crowe. I, I, I was thinking gladiator the whole time.
1: <laughs> I was too.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, I was thinking he's the gladiator guy. Speaking of Russell
2: Crowe. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Ultimately, we are all dead men. Sadly, we cannot choose how, but we can decide how we meet that end in order... That we were remembered as men. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this ni- life or the next. So my pick for my next film is Gladiator. Um, simply the quotes can be gone through, are you not entertained? The the movie has so many quotes that are amazing. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the director is Ridley Scott from Alien. Uh, and we also have the man himself, um, Russell Crowe. And so the the movie, if you haven't seen it, it's set in Roman times, and the story um, is about... Marcus Aurelius, and it's also about uh, the gladiator, which is oh god, what's his Maximus Decimus Max, Max Maximus Decimus, um, and he's essentially the general for Marcus Aurelius, who's the who's the uh, the emperor of Rome at the time, and essentially the emperor's son gets all gets all pissy because he knows that he's not gonna he the, he loves the general more than he loves him and he essentially kills marcus aurelius takes the seat of the emperor and essentially puts the gladiator into slavery and thinks nothing of it he's he's gone he won't come back and and that it's that last quote that i mentioned father to a murdered son husband to a murdered wife and i will have my vengeance in this life or the next because it is one of the best revenge tales along with, you know, some of the other films we talked about that I have, that I've ever seen. I think it won best picture at the Oscars in 2000 and no in 2000. Right. Pretty straight. Sure. Uh, so but don't quote me. The point on is that.
2: People really liked it.
3: People really liked people it. People really liked it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: It has, uh, You know, Russell Crowe, Joaquin Phoenix plays the Emperor's son. So, uh, yeah. Um, music is composed by Hans Zimmer. Just like, um, I believe Prestige also had Hans Zimmer, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. And essentially it's, it starts off as this, you know, revenge. It's the movie, it's a betrayal. It, uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character Commodus kills off his son and his wife and he uh, Gladiator has to escape from this slavery and try to find them and they're dead already and then he gets taken and it's a revenge tale that I won't obviously spoil the ending but it, it meets its end eventually where he may or may not get his revenge and As he wanted and it has one of the best fight scenes I think with the tiger pit and the uh, chariots I think that's probably one of the most badass fight scenes in in that whole film Um, if you haven't seen it go see it there's no excuse it's 2020 it's been out for 20 years come on that's all I got to say about that
2: it has one of the most accurate depictions of Roman tactics in the first opening scene that as well and I guess what what would be considered
0: what actually happened in the Roman Coliseum like because that's a, that's a big portion of the movie like a lot of the fighting and scenes take place in the Roman Coliseum as well as on the field of battle in the very first scene and then um, and yeah just great 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 film with some amazing music to go with it
1: very All right. nice solid pick. All right. for my next pick Children of Men. Dion Ferran is a jaded bureaucrat, a cog in the authoritarian machine that holds Britain together by force during a slow motion apocalypse brought about by worldwide infertility that has lasted 18 years. He is a former activist who has had the idealism beaten out of him by personal tragedy and the unrelenting slide of humanity into red-clawed self-destruction, and is now content to drink himself into oblivion and watch the world fall apart. A former lover played by Julianne Moore, who never lost her commitment to the cause, comes back into his life with a favor to ask and begins drawing Theo out. First, his emotions are reawakened in joyful and painful fashion. Later, those emotions spread outside of Theo's control, reaching outside of Theo, beyond the immediate circle of his loved ones out to touch all of humanity. This newfound humanism pushes Theo to risk his life for something bigger than himself. Children of Men is a fairly standard character arc uh, for Theo. Cynical bastard learns to believe again. Call it the Casablanca. What makes its use in Children of Men uniquely powerful is that it isn't simply the story of the cynical bastard. The cynical bastard is the audience member. The horrors of the fictional dystopia are the horrors of the world around us. And the moral choice that Theo makes is the same one that the director insists that we all confront. To accept the shared humanity of all the people of the world or continue... Uh, residing in a closed, hopeless existence. The film's climax is a jaw-dropping sequence in a refugee camp filmed in a single, continuous shot as Theo and his companions attempt to escape a harrowing battle between refugees and soldiers. They are frail and vulnerable, caught between the hammer and tongues of state violence and desperate fascism. The extended single take has a dual effect. On a purely cinematic level, it gives the scene a sense of panoramic realism and unrelenting tension, like a hand slowly closing around the viewer's throat. With no cuts, no montage, there's no time to breathe. Thematically, the shot serves to compress the viewer's identification with Theo to the point of a singularity. After watching the whole scene from a perch just over Theo's shoulder, there's no way for the viewer to separate from the character. And so, by cinematic identification, Theo's awakening becomes the viewer's awakening. Theo's dilemma becomes the viewer's dilemma, and his choice becomes the viewer's choice. Uh, The reason I chose No Country for for Old Men for my list, and my list has a theme of dystopians because that's by far one of my favorite subgenres in all of fiction. Um, Yeah, Children of Men um, is because I think out of all the films that I have listed or will list, it's the most realistic in terms of like what's going on in the world and how it has been so scary, accurate, and eerie with just the sort of, like, the the sort of, like, it was such a cautionary tale back in the mid-2000s when it came out. It came out in 2006, and much of the inspiration of it has already started to manifest, but Alfonso Cuadón, who is the director, kind of dialed it to 11, but giving it that grounded realism that makes it seem much more eerie when you rewatch it, uh, it, it like a second time. It, it's just crazy how visceral also some of the action scenes and a lot of like the way we humans treat each other and it's just crazy man. Like I only saw it like twice but it, it has always stuck with me because of how relevant it has sort of become.
2: Uh, that uh, has a uh, what's his name? Uh,
1: Clive Owen. Clive Owen, correct. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Check that out. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's basically kind of like Brexit the movie in a way, but you know.
3: Really, it looks pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's not—it's not that long either. It's like less than two hours, I think. Um, it's definitely a good a good movie to go watch. Nice,
2: nice. Mm-hmm. Um, for my. Number six spot I chose, if you're a fan of sci-fi, this one, like, true sci-fi, too. Like, we're going back to, like, kind of like what we were talking about, Kubrick, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, This comes from the mind of Philip K. Dick, the author who wrote um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, It was a short story that Ridley Scott then took and turned in and directed um blade runner and it is probably one of the i wouldn't say it's the well say it say it it's one of the best as far as when it comes to hardcore sci fi and it the way that it shot the idea of the story it's set in the not too distant future of twenty nineteen which we've already surpassed um, mm-hmm. and the earth has crippled itself you know you're seeing a lot of you know uh followings here of what's going on in current times um, we've crippled the earth there's not that much food left there's overpopulation and we are also in the business now of there's not too many humans left, but we're creating these things called replicants, which are androidic type humanoid, you know, they're half human, half machine. And um, we use them for work to go off world to the distant colonies of different planets and stuff. Uh, we use them for soldier security. Um, when they go Bad, or they start having mental synapses, or they start killing humans, um, they set out a group of former cops, SWAT specialists and stuff, they call them Blade Runners and their job is to hunt down rogue replicants and give them what they call their final dispatch, which is to basically execute them and so this story follows Harrison Ford um, his character by the name of Rick Deckert who is a former Blade Runner he is pulled out of retirement to hunt down a rogue group of replicants, there's three of them and the leader of this group is his character's name is roy batty uh played by the late rutger Hauer. um if you haven't seen this movie i'm not going to go into too much detail uh, there's it, it's a big cast daryl hannah is in it um oh i can't think of the other actress's name that plays um steven knows i'm pretty sure steven can help me up here with that um
1: I actually don't. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Um,
2: I can't think of her name, but she plays the love interest to Harrison Ford's character. Mm -hmm. Um, This movie, as far as the pop culture references to it, the final monologue in the ending scene with Rutger Howard, um, which has been titled tears in the rain um, is probably one of the boat, the best monologues as far as depicting death when you know that it's inevitable. And th- the overall setting of it, it, it's made with miniatures and props and stuff. It gives a dystopian look to Sean Young. Sean Young, that's right. Yeah, Sean Young. Sean Young. Um, and th- just the the whole entire world and persona that it created after the movie came out. Um, it was kind of a cult classic when it first came out. Now it's got more traction of course because they have made a sequel to it and um, that's why I put it at my
1: number 6 spot
2: makes sense a little bit
1: of uh, trivia but Harrison Ford I think hated filming for that movie <laughs> he did he yeah. did actually yeah. so funny mm.
0: alright alright
3: so my next one is the Shawshank Redemption. Um, this one is a little bit of a lengthy movie, if I recall correctly, but it's really, it's really fun to watch. Uh, it actually almost attracted Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, and Kevin Costner apparently to the late, uh, main role, except uh, Tim Robbins was eventually the one to take it. But his, uh, the other actor on the on the card, Morgan Freeman. Is in this movie, and honestly, one of the best things about this movie is their their uh, their acting skills. They completely acted out their roles perfectly, in my opinion. Uh, but the movie is essentially about a guy who was convicted of killing his wife and her lover, I believe. Andy Dufresne. And, uh, right. Yeah. Andy Dufresne, and um, he eventually goes on to befriend another character named Red, which is Morgan Freeman's character. Uh, and essentially uh, Andy devises his own way to go up the hierarchy in the administrative part of the prison, such as becoming first a library assistant. And then eventually the, uh, the warden's like financial assistant, because Andy's a trained in accounting. And then eventually you get to see him bit by bit, slowly plot his way out of the prison. Um, And then on the side part of that, you also see how red adapts to getting out of prison while he was just, he eventually was let off on parole, but, um, being in prison for over 50 years, you can tell that he just could not acclimate to it. And it's very sad to watch, um, this man who has been in prison for that long struggle to get used to being on the outside. Um, all in all, I, I think the, think what what i really loved about it was the uh the storytelling the plot um in and, and a lot of morgan freeman and tim robbins role in the movie it's got a pretty good score too I'm, uh, it's not like entirely impressive but it is a pretty good one um but i don't want to spoil too much of what goes down in the movie other than what i've said uh which may be a lot of revealing as it is already but uh one other interesting thing about this movie was that it didn't um it didn't Take off early on when it went into the uh, when it when it released, uh, because it was being out competed by movies like Pulp Fiction. So, one of the real ways this movie took off was through you know, people telling each other, Hey, have you seen this movie? Yeah, you know, yeah that's my well. interesting, that's one of my interesting trivia uh, facts about it. Wow,
0: cool, interesting. Now, I'm sh- now I'm sure some of these. Movies on our lists, uh, we could watch these movies <laughs> over, and over 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 again. Um, whether it be you know once a year, twice a year, maybe this movie, I think I could watch it over and over again and never really get old of it. And it has so many quotable lines. Has a ninety-seven percent on fr- fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It came out in the 80s, one of the greatest eras for films, and simply has one of the most memorable lines in the whole film. Inconceivable. No, I'm just kidding. Hello, my name is Enigma Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Which should pretty much state any movie that wants to go up against this film. Um... (laughs) But The Princess Bride is what I'm talking about. It's uh, directed by Rob Reiner. Um, I'm not very familiar with a lot of his films, uh, but this is probably one of my favorite films. I think I watched this when I was like six or seven, and I was like kind of like the kid in the very beginning. Uh, I don't want to watch a movie about, you know, um, you know, love and, and romance. bromance. I want action, something like that. This has your action. This has sword fighting, more swashbuckling sword fighting, almost comparable. Well, I would say more higher class swashbuckling and sword fighting than Pirates of the Caribbean. Some of the more quotable lines that pretty much sounds like that they may have you know took inspiration to have for Captain Jack Sparrow for uh, Wesley in the movie, and it's essentially a fairy tale adventure where it is about love and you know taking back the one you love most because wesley and the main character um who some of you may not know but unless you've seen house of cards uh she she is she's the first lady in house of cards um and it but bouncing back to this film it's essentially just he Wesley goes on a trek to come and go and save her but she gets taken captive by three people um, one of which is Inigo Montoya and then we have Andre the Giant's character Fez, no is he yeah Fezzik and then Vassini who's done by Wallace Shawn um, and then Carrie Elvis plays Wesley uh, Car- <coughs> carrie has been in a lot of films he was actually in Saw as well and then you have some of the characters like Chris Sarandon and Mandy Patinkin plays in Montoya he was in Criminal Minds if you've seen that he's in um, Home oh god what's the Nick I know you know that TV show what which one Homeland oh um, uh, well the Homeland yeah he's in Homeland Mandy Patinkin uh, yes yeah yeah and It's just like these characters weren't like super like these um, these actors weren't super huge at this time, but their performances make this movie watchable over and over again. I would say you could unless you're going to watch every single day, you won't get sick of it. And for for such a very basic premise of, you know, going after the one you love, they make it so enthralling every scene. And you know, the, the, there's so many quotable lines from this film from the, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya line. You have, um, Iocane powder. (laughs) I built up an immunity to it over time. Inconceivable. Um, (laughs) there's, there's so many just memorable parts of this film that makes it so great. And I think that's, that's, that's
2: why I had to put it on my list That's a solid pick. That one. That one's part of the childhood for sure. Yeah.
1: All right. For the number five slot, no country for old men. I love this film for everything it doesn't do. It doesn't give us the initial shootout. It doesn't give us the final shootout. it doesn't give us unsourced music. It doesn't give us easy answers. And heck, we can't even connect the dots without some deep dot, a few beers, and a couple of views. In total, it doesn't do all the things that a lesser movie would feel it has to do. But bonus points for what it does do. It gives, it gives us a haunting movie with fantastic characters and one of the all-time best villains to ever hit the big screen. And that was that, as they say, a coin flip.
0: That's essentially the the net net of the last time we did this Stalder Royale, and the last time we did Game of the Year because it was fucking a coin flip that killed everything good in my life. All right. <laughs>
1: oh my god. Oh god. Sorry. But yeah, no, no. no country for old men, a fucking perfect neo western. That has no heroes. Right, it, it's just pure anti-heroes is, left and right. It's
3: gotta be one of the m- best parts about that movie is that the the good guy doesn't really win at all.
1: Yeah, or exactly. I mean,
3: not even that, that. Not even that. But the the bad guy like is just a dark ending.
1: Yeah, it's just that. The the villain is a force of nature, and I really do feel like Nolan took inspiration from that for the Joker in a way. And um I just love how they portray that that one end scene where he's in that car accident, and you, you see like his protruding like shoulder just completely ripped out his arm, and it's like this force of nature is fucking fallible. It's like it's not like. It's not like nihilism is going to win the days. Like, it, it does have its moments of like, yeah, fuck you too, you know? <laughs> so this is the third Josh Brolin film in. on our list. So, oh. what is
3: his name? Javier?
1: Javier uh, Bardem.
3: Javier Bardem. 100% unnerved me in that film, and it was amazing. Like, that dude had a stunning performance. That part where they're in the gas station, you know? Oh, oh yeah. The that,
1: fucking coin flip. What's the most you've ever lost to the Quintos? Yeah, that's my number five He's spot.
3: Chewing on that peanut?
1: Like, oh, <laughs> man. Yeah, this guy's made <laughs> Peanut, man. All
2: right. My number five pick is one that you gentlemen probably haven't, have never seen or even heard of. Um, it is from 1962. It is Howard Hawks uh, Atari. Um, it stars John Wayne, red buttons and a huge cast of other, uh, great actors and actresses from the sixties and early seventies. Um, it's based off of a book called the animal catchers and it's all shot on location in Africa and it follows a group of, um, game catchers. So they, they catch wild animals for the zoos of the world. Um, which at the time zoos were very popular and big at that time. Um, And yeah, so it's all shot on location. There's like pure live stunts. There's trucks and Jeeps chasing after uh, elephants, giraffes, rhinos at top speeds, them trying to lasso them to stop them so they can get them into paddocking trucks. Um, And there's, there's comedic relief for the 60s and stuff, some of the music of the time. Um, there's also some kind of campy stuff with baby elephants that come into play with one of the main characters. Her character becomes like the mother of elephants. And there's also, I don't want to spoil too much of It if you guys want to see it or anybody else out there that wants to see it, but there is a great scene that involves a rocket and a bunch of monkeys and that is Atari and that is my number five pick you just (laughs) described last week on when I played just cause
0: uh (laughs) rocket a bunch of monkeys interesting all right Peyton uh my turn yep
3: my next point oh my next uh, choice. Oh, we're getting to the nitty gritty here. Yeah, buddy. Oh, yeah, buddy. yeah, it's getting oh, good now. Let's go. Uh, so my next choice is Old Boy, 2003. It was a uh, a South Korean film that was based off of the Japanese manga with the same name. Um I found a, be- a better summary than what I had planned to say, so I'll just read that. Uh, it's the story of a man who is imprisoned for fifteen years and then released with no explanation as to why he is confined and released. Now he has been given five days to learn his captor's true identity and find out why he was imprisoned or his new lover interest will be killed. On the contrary, if he does find this captor's true identity, the true the, the captor will kill himself instead. So this is one of those movies I don't really want to spoil it because it has an insane twist at the end. I mean, it's not it's not exactly insane, but the way the actors like sold it, the actors in this movie really, really are great, and uh, the story too. But it um it has an insane twist at the end of it. I really think it's a great movie. Everybody should see. They did a remake of this. Uh, I think it was an American adaptation, I believe. But Josh I always loved the original. Right. Yeah. I always I always loved the original. Nothing against. It. You know a remake, but I think the OG one was 100 percent better, and uh, uh, it has some phenomenal action scenes in it. it. It's a great twist of of action with a uh, we're uh, sophist- not really sophisticated, but, but like a like a b- bigger bigger behind the scenes motive going on. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, I really I really encourage any of you to watch it if you hadn't. I, I don't want to say too much about it because that twist at the end is really gnarly. Uh but it's 100% worth a watch. Great action, great story. Um it what I, what's really cool about it is, you know you as the audience member know what's going on. Like you're like what why why is he being treated way? And uh I will say so. um one important thing about the movie is that Before he was in prison, he had a daughter, and he's also looking for his daughter uh, when he gets out of jail, or well, whenever he gets out of his prison, for example. It's not like a general everyday. It's a uh, an apartment room, and they feed they bring feed food to his door through like a little like a little trap door hatch, and uh, he's basically kind of trapped in there with with whatever they allow. He has a TV, for example. And there's only certain things you can watch over and over and over again. So at some point like he's actually memorized uh certain, you know, television programs that come on over the fifteen years he's been in prison and he learns to shadow box in there. Man, it's badass. Y'all have to watch it. It's I'll have great. to Check that out. Mm. Yeah.
0: Whoa. Oh. Okay. Oh, Shut your mic off, please God. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> it was starting to start to turn a little bit bad Damn. for his connection. They a full Robo Cop on us.
2: Full Cylon.
0: Sorry for your ears, everybody. <laughs> having technical difficulties, but oh, <laughs> it's okay. It's <laughs> fine. You know why? Because we all we right, don't we use Craig whatever. anymore. Yes, we can hear it ourselves Okay, so better. You're gonna have to-
3: anyway. Yeah, yeah. Just to close on that, I really encourage y'all to watch it. It's fantastic.
0: Great. Um, Right on. So, I think... Yeah, it's me. Okay, so I've never seen Old Boy, but I think I might have to check it out. Um, So, the next film for me. This film, some people said, was a bit long. I say, it's one hell of a watch. Um, I initially had... uh, Casino on my list. Fantastic film. Everyone should see that gangster film. I decided to trade it out for The Irishman. Uh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Harvey Keitel, Ray Romano, uh, Bobby cannavale Like right, so many so many great actors in this film that and I think it was in Netflix, it was made by Netflix, and uh, it was directed by, again, Martin Scorsese. Do we have another Scorsese film on here?
1: Taxi Driver.
0: Taxi Driver, that's right. Yeah. Um, second uh, Robert Genoa film on here. And in, in itself, it, it. how long is the runtime? Was it like four hours? It's a little,
1: no, it's a little over three hours. A little over three, uh, 209 it's not, minutes That's what
0: I have here. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's on Netflix. I would definitely recommend checking it out. I think they do they break it into parts?
1: Um, I don't think they do. I might be wrong. Maybe they break it up like in chapter selections. Yeah.
0: Where I think there is like chapter selection.
1: The first part is like 40 minutes. Second part, another 40 minutes.
0: But the, the whole purpose of it is, um, it talks about the Irishman who's Robert De Niro's character. And, um, one moment. And so it follows, his name's Frank Sheeran, and uh, he's essentially working for, you know, he's by himself. He's kind of working in security initially, and then he hasn't really gotten to the mob life. And then um, it dives into, he's trying to get his, you know, life back on track, and he does join part of the mob with the Buffalino crime family who is kind of in ties with a lot of different folks, one of which is Jimmy Hoffa, who is played by... um, Oh. Oh, my God. What? No, nothing. No, no, I was going to say Al Pacino's character is played... Okay. He plays Jimmy okay. Hoffa. I wasn't forgetting. I was looking at something else at okay. the same time. Okay, No, okay. and then, of course, we have Russell Bufalino, who's played by Joe Pesci, um, who kind of gets Robert... Uh, Frank, Frank's character, Robert's character, Frank into the mob, um, and there's so many really crazy parts of this because it's based off of true events that happened. Every if you don't, haven't heard about Jimmy Hoffa and a connection to the mob, what the hell? Um, they did they confirm that it was it was it was speculated upon that Frank Sheeran killed Jimmy Hoffa. Is that correct? They didn't. They never confirmed it ever. This is. They just. They took some artistic uh, parts and, and and applied it to this film. Correct.
1: I know that the movie was based on the book uh, "How to Paint Houses," I believe is what it was called. Right. Um, believe but, right. Uh, we're, talking, we're talking about the Irishman, right?
2: Correct. Right. Okay, because you said casino earlier, and that got me really. Confused. No, I (laughs) traded
0: out Casino for The Irishman. Gotcha, okay. Yeah, that was initially on my list, but now we've traded it for this. Um, But the long and the short of it is um, it's a great film. I won't spoil the ending. Uh, Let's just say a lot of crazy shit happens. And also to mention, like Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci's character are very much, you know, business partners to some degree and what they do and they're, they're close friends. But then Robert De Niro becomes the, um, the personal uh, bodyguard essentially for Al Pacino's Jimmy Hoffa and they become very close and there's some hard uh, decisions to be made from both ends. And it also tells about the story about, you know, his, uh, Robert De Niro's, interactions with his family in the film and you know he has a daughter and his daughter just started getting older and it goes from essentially you know when he first meets uh russell buffalino paid by joe pesci and goes out throughout his
1: entire life yeah it's depicting like three different time periods i believe
0: Mm -hmm. and i think it's one of the best mob films um because a it's it's really going into actual kind of things that did happen and then also um, you know kind of giving us a little bit of a idea of like what actually happened to Jimmy Hoffa because the whole purpose was he was, he was a, a union guy that was kind of going against the grain of what the mob wanted and he was butting heads against a, a few people in the mob and doing things that he really shouldn't be doing um, and he pays for it in some manner or another. Great film. If you haven't seen it, give it a watch. I would break it in two parts if you don't want to sit down for that long. But still, if you watch it beginning to end, just as enjoyable.
3: Yeah, so like, uh, I've been really intimidated by how long it is. Do you have a recommendation of when an audience person, when? like as myself, like, you know, when you can
0: have an intermission? Yeah. Is
3: there a part in the uh, movie?
0: Mm. It's been a while since I've watched it myself. I'm trying to remember. I think a solid point is right. (sighs) Shit. One's a good point. Um,
2: Probably. Surely
3: there's like a scene where you can go, okay, I can put this down for a second.
2: Yeah. De Niro meets his character meets Hoffa. Right. I think
1: that's, yeah, yeah, that's, and I think that's also a portion where they split it up too, where it ends. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a version of it where they have to split up in chapter. Chapters, so you can follow that if you want to consume you. it in bite sized pieces. Yeah,
0: let's see. Um, I'm just reading into it right now. <sighs> yeah, but go
1: ahead about your next. My number four pick is Roma, Mexico 1971. The old tumultuous times captured every day is buried through the lens of the director and his naked mirror of reality. Task after task of hard work, our main character Cleo still stands strong in despite of her unblinking sorrows and personal tragedies. How she is isolated when all she needs is a man to love. Then what she thought was love had betrayed her and the little one inside her. How life can strike as ferocious as sea waves clashing against the sand. Lyrics can be found within the frames. Lyrics can be found in her actions. One long take, one woman who takes on the roaring currents for a soul-crushing experience a selfless decision because she loves her children serenity comes after the storm and just like that another day begins with complete modesty are you finally at peace so roma tells the tale of this mexican um she basically is the caretaker for a richer family and she is fully acclimated into their life, as 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 it is in Mexican culture, especially back in the seventies and even till now. Um, and the film really doesn't dive. It, it's very much the anti-parasite of, in terms of like having these different lifestyles clash against one another. Um, and the director sort of paints this picture all in black and white like I mentioned, and it just goes through the life of this housekeeper, pretty much, and how, for all intents and purposes, she is taken advantage of, she is not appreciated in that regard, but not in the sense of like, oh, they ignore her, like, they recognize her existence, they recognize her status as the housekeeper, and in many ways, they consider her as family. But despite all that, despite her acclimation to this lifestyle that ultimately we all decide to pursue, even if it's against our will at times, Cleo goes through this journey of just painful regret, finding that one individual solace outside of her work. And the director just takes us basically through different like uh, set pieces, of Mexican culture um there's an earthquake scene there's a bunch of like different social unrest there's a riot scene it's just a slice of life of mexico back in 1971 and on a personal note this one definitely hit me the hardest in terms of just how intimate it it all conveyed that lifestyle and how much of that culture and tradition still reverberates today, uh, even for us Mexicans who migrated to America. Um, And there is in the entire film, Cleo is always seen descending stairs, always going down. There's never a moment where she ascends in any way as she traverses the city landscape and the tiled buildings and everything. But at the end, when she comes after this painful and traumatic event and uh, a truth that she feels like she didn't want to confront but has to for the sake of her, you know, the family that she takes care of and the children, she ultimately makes this fairly awful choice. And I won't spoil it, but again, it's pretty... It's definitely the type of moral dilemma that any other director could have really fucked it up. But Alfonso Cuadón just nails it so perfectly, especially within the perspective of a mother. And at the end of the movie, we finally see a shot where she everything goes back to normal. She She goes back to her duty, being the housekeeper. But for the first time in the entire film, she finally is seen walking up the stairs of this nearby alley as she's doing the laundry, picking up. She's finally ascending instead of descending. And the final shot is just an airplane in the distance just flying by with the sort of like wind trails, right? Um, And there's a scene in Mad Men season seven. I believe, Nick, if you can correct me, the episode is called Lost Horizon, or it's the one before that. Where Don Draper is like yeah, right. in a boardroom with all these, you know, ex, you know, admin, right? That pretty much is just a co- a a copy of him, and he feels so out of place because he's no longer that special anymore. And he looks out the window, and he looks at the airplane, and he just like he comes to that real that realization that this is no longer his place. And I just find it so fucking fascinating and beautiful how you can take the very concept of that one airplane and how it can mean something different in two different pieces of medium, both in Roma and in Madman. In Madman's case, it's Don Draper just trying to find his way and he feels lost. In Roma, it shows how Cleo has finally ascended to a greater purpose. Um, and how she is just a small cog in the bigger machine. That is, you know, the, the housekeeping underground world of Mexico. And honestly, Roma is just so fucking good. I, it, It's definitely... Uh, I think it was also one of the first Netflix films to be nominated for Best Picture. I think it won it. I, I might be wrong on that, but I have to, uh, I have to double check. I think it oh. might be right.
3: Yeah, uh, I, admit, I may have missed it but why is the uh, title Roma? Is there any significance there?
1: I guess it's just it's just it's yeah, just go ahead. The, the, I I don't specifically know. I haven't really read too much into the interviews or anything like that, but I think it just builds into the idea of like Rome wasn't built in a day and the idea of like uh, the 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 lower caste of of people who Built Rome, like yeah that's yeah. what Roma is about. Right. And I feel right. like I the for that. Yeah. But
2: it it says to, I just looked it up too. It says that the um, the movie titles comes from the nineteen seventies neighborhood, Colonia Roma, where oh, the okay. family lives too.
1: Oh, okay, see. Oh, okay. That,
2: yeah, that, yeah. that makes more sense. Yeah. I liked your little analogy too though. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it talks about that actually in there. There you okay. go. So, there it is. Um, yeah, it was really well, a really well shot film. Yeah. So, um, all right. My number four pick, uh, which I know most of you here in this, in this crew are fans of the Marvel universe. And this number four pick is what kind of kickstarted, the pathway to what we got with Avengers Endgame, And that's with, uh, John Favreau's 2008 iron man, um, Robert Downey jr's first time of donning actual iron man armor and taking the, the comic book character, um, Tony Stark, who's, you know, coined as the, you know, playboy billionaire, um, Arms dealer in this movie, uh, part of Stark Industries and stuff, and how he turns from the Warhawk scenario of selling weapons and stuff when he is um, kidnapped during a weapons demonstration in Iraq by um, by ter- by a terror a terrorist organization, and he sees that his weapons are getting, and so he, while he's in captivity, to escape from. Ca- Captivity. him and uh, another captive who I believe his name was Yanni or Yusef. Um, they build this prototype armor to bust out of this like cave system that they're in. And that's the Iron Man suit. And so when he gets back from captivity back to the States and stuff, he changes his whole MO of, we're not going to make weapons anymore. We're going to become like this. I'm going to become this deterrent Um, and also kind of like philanthropy, philanthropy work with saving people instead of trying to harm people. And it kicks off the Marvel universe. It kicks off the grounding that Kevin Feige and Favreau as a director and some of those uh, actors and actresses principles that were, that would be seen in over what, 20 movies. Um, so that's that's why I put it in at my number four spot very nice
3: that movie too how's it going um okay so my next pick there's a lot to unpack here uh name was Robert Paulson (laughs) Fight Club um (laughs) so uh, have y'all all seen Fight Club yes hell yeah yes Okay. Okay. So uh, I think that my co- uh, my colleagues here, co-hosts, whatever you want to call them, my my friends here, can agree with me. As if anybody in the audience who's also seen the movie, there is so much that can be said about this movie. Um, one of the reasons I picked it was because of so many uh, so many metaphors that go on throughout the film. Um, it's essentially a character. Battling with insomnia, and he meets another character who you begin to unravel. Uh, I don't want to spoil that much about it, but you get to unravel the the details behind this other character, the name Tyler Durden. And as the the main theme that happens in the show is this conflicting passive spectation of of society. So. Uh, as you may have, may be able to guess from the title of the film, they create these things called fight clubs where they we don't fight. Talk
0: about it, man. Do what? Duet. We don't talk about that shit.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. That's rule number one. Rule number two. That, what's rule number two, guys? Club. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but for the most part, these fights aren't really about significance of who's better at martial combat. More as it is. To not feel numb anymore, not to feel cocooned or stagnant in society, and uh, I think that one of the things that is really uh, crazy about the film is that it wasn't it's it's a cult film, so it wasn't really that it became popular just from its release. It was one another one of those movies. Similar to Shawshank Redemption, where it was it gained a lot of traction through word of mouth. In fact, the movie's uh, based off of the book called Pulp Fiction. I mean, <laughs> Fight Club that came out a couple years prior to uh, the film release. Um, I mean, guys, if you all have any comments to add in on how crazy that movie is, feel free. Uh, it's an easy pick for me because of how many paradigms are in it um and the twists that you get at the uh near the end too it's not
2: at the end you know but it's sort of near it and you're like oh okay so that explains stuff i just i love how that movie uh, spawned when it came out it spawned like tons of people getting their like big groups of friends together and actually <laughs> exactly. legal fight clubs in their houses and stuff
3: yeah, that was one of the biggest cultural impacts it had. Like, it actually had people respond to it in their in their own lives in certain little clicks. And you There's actually a- just
0: went through the whole description of the film without even saying who's in it.
3: Well, I mean, Edward I Norton, Norton is in. the uh, is the main protra- uh, protagonist, and then Brad Pitt is Tyler Durden's character. Um, which I mean, if <laughs> that should be enough reason to watch it in itself, you have those two on the. On the at cast
2: mm-hmm.
3: Come on You have Jared Leto too in there But Jared I mean Leto. he's just uh, Butterface
2: in that one Helena Bottom Carter is in that too I think Yeah, that, yeah that's
1: uh, right yeah. Yep. Alright It's an iconic movie Yeah Yep.
0: So I need Japanese steel Those of you Lucky enough to have your lives Take them with you However, leave the limbs you've lost. They belong to me now. I don't know if... I'm pretty sure everyone in here has seen it. If you have not seen Kill Bill Volume 1, what are you doing with your lives? It's one of the best Quentin Tarantino films of all time. Cast. uh, Michael Madsen. Daryl Hannah. uh, We got Lucy Liu for the win. uh, Vivica A. Fox. uh, Uma Thurman as the bride yes you heard me nick um tossed in a little inside joke there uh it is one of the best action films that i mean and of course i could say this all day one of the best action films of all time but it's it's another revenge story about I think in this film, she lost her, she lost her memory, if I'm not mistaken, and she gets put into a, a coma, but essentially she woke up after a four year coma and she's a former assassin and she's trying to piece some shit together about what's going on. And in the first scene, um, remind me or not, is the wedding scene the very first scene in the film or is that the second movie? That has the, that has the um, wedding scene.
1: Oh, I believe it's the second
0: movie. The second movie has the wedding scene. Okay, but essentially, the she in the fir- in the first film she had been getting married, and then these four assassins come to kill her, and they're led by this guy named Bill. Uh, I don't think he does any of the shooting, but these four, other four people are all assassins and they, they just gunned out everyone at this wedding. And so it becomes a, uh, a very good Quentin Tarantino revenge story. Um, Uma Thurman's the lead. She plays the bride. We don't know her name, uh, other than, you know, she's referred to as kiddo by Bill and, uh, Lucy Liu plays one of the people she has to hunt down along with Vivica a. Fox, who plays, um, vernita green i think her oh she she's black mamba right isn't that her or is that daryl hannah which one's black mamba i think it's vivica fox's character wow thanks for the thanks for the help guys uh (laughs) And well, Dar- like, volume one. Yeah, Daryl Daryl Hannah um is is another they they all have snake names. So Vivica A. Fox is Black Mamba, Daryl Hannah uh, is another snake and they're they're all and Michael Madsen's character who's essentially like parallel to his character in um oh fuck. The other Quentin Tarantino film Oh Christ. I want to say Goodfellas, but I know that's not the right name because that's not even fucking... What's the one where he dances and cuts someone's ear off? Reservoir Dogs. He's in Reservoir Dogs. And he's essentially a bastard in, in this film, and that one. And you actually see the... Uh, They all have these samurai swords. That's what makes this movie super, really great. Um, Except for, of course, Michael Madsen's character, who hawks his Hattori Hanzo Japanese steel sword, and you see it in Pulp Fiction um, with uh, Bruce Willis. That's where that sword kind of crosses over into that film. So uh, the long and the short of it, if you haven't seen Kill Bill, there is some serious kick-ass fight scenes, that with, with simply for the fight scenes alone. If you're gonna watch this film, it's amazing. But yeah, that is why I put it on my my list.
1: Yeah, had for ten, your recommendation, I think there. I think we talked like l- late last year or something. But you recommended I watch those films, and oh, yeah. I did. And I just went through like a binge of Tarantino films. Fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. I definitely missed out.
0: And Bill's not. Actually, oh, who plays? Oh, and the music's done by Raza um, in the film as well. Who do, who plays Bill? I completely blanked on that.
2: Uh, that is a David Carradine.
0: David Carradine. He's no longer with us. Um, he does the voice of Landon Ricketts in Red Dead Redemption. Am I mistaken on that? I'm not. No, I, I am totally wrong. That's Ross Hegan. Forget what I just said. Um, but yeah, uh, he, David Carradine's been in a lot of different films and things of that nature. I'm not sure if he's in this first one, but essentially Lucy Liu plays Oren Ishii, the uh, Cottonmouth, codenamed Cottonmouth. Um, that's her specific uh, name in this, and, and she she's the main antagonist in this, because she's the one who knows where Bill is, and she's one of the other ones she needs to cross off the list. Oh, fuck me. Uma Thurman's Black Mamba. Jesus Christ. How did I forget that? The, who, wait, Copperhead. <laughs> Vivica A. Fox is Copperhead, and Sidewinder is Michael Madsen. I should have looked at the Wikipedia earlier, and then we...
2: Would have kicked you out the door by now. Uh, who? Robert Ebert. Yeah. You don't know who Robert Ebert is?
0: I know. I didn't hear it, didn't come through at the first part. Oh, I'm sorry. And then Daryl Hannah's California Mountain Snake. What a stupid name. Uh, <laughs> the other ones are like really cool. She's just like she's actually she, Daryl Hannah's character is the most deadly in the whole film. Um, that's why she said I should have been Black Mamba, because she's apparently most deadly. I'll end it there. It's a very good film. Who hasn't seen it? None of us?
2: I think we've all seen it. Good. Or I don't know about... uh, Has everybody seen
1: it? Yes. All All right. So, Steve. All right. For my number three pick... There is a house on a hill, and there are people in it, and they're nice, but not really. There is a garden, and there they get a lot of sunlight, and it is nice, and they get to sleep there sometimes. There is a house on the ground, and there are people in it, and they're the first to tell you that they're not very nice. They're con men, grifters, forgers, and imposters. They sit amongst stink bugs, and they've been there for so long that maybe they've convinced themselves that they just belong there. There is a rock, and it is a gift, but it is also a burden. And maybe it's a metaphor, but it's also just a rock. Solid and heavy, hard to lug around, and dangerous in the wrong hands. Some people will tell you that it's supposed to bring wealth, but again, it's also just a rock. There is a line, and it cannot be crossed. There is a smell, and it comes from the underground. And the people who live in the house on the hill can smell it. And the people who live underground try to imagine a life in the sun, a future where they aren't just garbage to be washed away in the rain. But there is a smell that sticks to them and they know that they can never really belong. There is a world and it is nice, but not really. There are houses on hills and houses underground. There is plenty of sun, but it isn't for everybody. There are people grateful to be slaves and people unhappy to be served. There are systems that we are born into and they create these lines that cannot be crossed. And we all dream of something better, but we've been with these lines for so long that we've convinced ourselves that there really isn't anything to be done. There is a knife and it doesn't do much in the long run, but there will always be some satisfaction in crossing those lines. My third spot is *Parasite*, which is the first foreign film to win the best Oscar. Um, I think this was what last year? Yeah, 2019. Um, it's basically a very masterful work that blends different subgenres of black comedy, of of I guess not horror per se, but more of a thriller, um, class consciousness. It deals with the perils of our current economic situation, both not only in the US, but everywhere else, between the haves and the have-nots. But it doesn't paint a good and a bad side. It's more of a critique or an understanding of, with the system that we currently have in place, we need to be cognizant with our behaviors attached to that system and why certain trends towards social unrest, resentment toward the rich resentment toward the poor, those who don't look like us. And even those who do look like us, um, parasite is just, it's not a cautionary tale because it's depicting exactly what we need to hear. And it's going to be in my opinion a timely classic that will stand on the on the shoulders of giants like Kubrick and all the rest and that's why it's my number three pick
0: very nice nice, fantastic movie
2: really good movie
0: I've actually never seen it I need to see it um
2: and it won best picture last year right so yep. get on it yeah <sighs> All right, my number three uh, if you were a if you're a fan of 80s just hardcore full throttle action and also some sci-fi alien throw in there for good measure and just a pure ton of testosterone laden muscle uh, Predator is is the movie for you (laughs) Um, an eclectic cast Arnold Schwarzenegger Uh... uh, (laughs) yeah Uh, Carl Weathers, Shane Black, Bill Duke, uh, Sonny Landom just it all and Jesse Ventura of course um, there uh, it, it follows like this special force team that's sent into the jungle to take out this like communist like military camp that attacked a other special force group and stuff and it turns out that the CIA is actually hunting down this alien from another planet that has come here and has caused this other special force team to be killed. And, uh, the predator hunts them in the jungles of Columbia. And it's just, like I said, it's just a pure action movie. It's got suspense. It's got gore. It's got a lot of just a lot of quotes, a lot of muscle and a lot of bullets flying. And, uh, um, it, it, it's the first one that kind of spawned a rather what's the, what's the word that I say a rather eclectic group of movies. Hmm. Um, some good, some really bad. Um, but yeah, that first one and what it did as far as for like uh, costume design and and makeup design for like the for the Predator and stuff and. What they used to for for the time, it was pretty um, revolutionary. And um, yeah, I grew up watching it and stuff. It was like that thing where it's like if you wanted to think about going into the military, watch that, and you're like, yeah, that's the badass that I want to be. Um, you know. So if you haven't seen it, I go. I would definitely say go watch that one at least. The other ones, I can't say too much for, but. Um, yeah, that's my number three pick. Something. Very nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: Well, there's this buzzing noise to your voice. Oh, crap. Hold on. One more reset. Tactical difficulties, ladies and gentlemen. It happens to us all. We're back? Yes. It's a little bit... All right. Yeah, you're good.
3: Hello, Clarice. A line that was actually never stated in the movie, yet we all seem to resonate behind. My next pick is Silence of the Lambs. And boy, oh boy, what a movie. I think the best thing about this movie are the two lead actors, uh, Jodie Foster and Sir Anthony Hopkins, who fucking kill it. Especially especially Anthony Hopkins playing as Hannibal Lecter. Um, this movie is about another strong female uh, hero who is a detective for the FBI. Essentially, um, she's, been, she's been recommended as the, uh, the one to communicate with uh, Dr. Lecter on trying to figure out how to perform a psychological profile on the killer that is now rampaging through the states known as Buffalo Bill. Um, Buffalo Bill has obviously been Killing a lot of females um, And they don't exactly Have a motive for it And so they think that they can get A lot more conducive information Out of Dr. Lecter But as you uh, learn throughout the film If you're not familiar with Silence of the Lambs or Red Dragon or, uh, Or Hannibal itself uh, Dr. Lecter is a mastermind. He's a master in clinical psychology as well as psych uh, as, as well as um, what?
0: cannibalism.
3: Do what? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's another thing. Uh, he's also a cannibal. cannibal, Hannibal the cannibal. Anyway, uh, he's very, 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 very good at manipulating uh, people because of his intelligence Um, And he's also just a really, really creepy character, Um, underlying creepy. But I think one of the things that is really fascinating about this film is the way that they were able to really get us as an audience petrified by Hannibal's uh, dialogue, his diction, but also the mysticism behind him, like because at, at the same time you're also trying to figure him out, and as over time, as uh, as I forget the main character's name,
0: Jody's Fo- Jody Foster's character.
3: Oh yeah, Jody Foster's Clarice. character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I forgot? Yeah, Clarice <laughs> Starling. Uh, it's like, what? Yeah, yeah, I already said <laughs> it earlier. Yeah, the, uh, the
0: sheep stopped screaming.
3: While while uh, Clarice Rant. is trying to figure out the profile for. Buffalo Bill I think secretly as an audience we're trying to figure out Hannibal as uh, as a character too and uh, just exactly what his motivations are and and all that but I really love the film I think that that the other movies in the trilogy are worth watching too if you want to get the full scope but the strong contender out of all three of them has got to be Silence of the Lambs
2: a solid pick for sure yeah i love that movie um
0: so i had a coin toss about what what i was gonna put next doesn't really matter the order of these wait what oh okay i had a coin toss about what i was gonna pick next for my film um not a coin toss between this film and another film but between the last two films i have Oh, okay. is not gonna switch any of these films out of my list okay yeah I to do so to would be that. I'll
1: be against the rules I'd fucking boot you <laughs> uh, alright go go ahead
0: they need you right now but when they don't they'll cast you out like a leper you'll see their morals their code it's just a bad joke Drop to the first sign of trouble they're only as good as the world allows them to be I'll show you when the chips are down, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. Uttered by Mr. Heath Ledger in
2: my next pick. I'm a dog chasing cars.
0: I wouldn't know what to do with, I wouldn't know what to do if I caught it. You know, I just new things. If only there was somewhere you could hide. Um, <laughs> it's not from that movie, but uh, Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight uh, simply makes this a must-have for my list. Um, anyone here can attest to the fact that this movie is probably one of the best. It, it is the best DC movie, in my opinion. I wouldn't even classify it as that. I classify it, it it's definitely a batman film but i think Heath Ledger steals the show he makes it he makes it the reason to watch this film because he's such a good bad guy that you must not take your eyes away from the screen of course you know you have a few other characters in this movie like 2 Face, which is um oh what is that actor's name we got uh Aaron Eckhart plays Harvey Dent in this movie who actually it's more of a it's a really good tragedy story for him because he's you know this lawyer and he's he's trying to do the right thing and he he always tries to be the white knight and he gets taken down because he loses the one he loves and everything that's true to that he holds true is is dashed against the rocks and he gets taken down the dark path by the Joker and the crime world he's trying to take out uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal in this movie. She plays Rachel um, and <laughs> of course Gary Oldman as Gordon Lucius Fox with uh, Morgan Freeman. Michael Caine as Alfred and Christian Bale as Batman Bruce Wayne Uh, I think this has got to be one of those again kind of like one of those films you can kind of watch and never really never not want to watch it again you know um, we also have uh, kill me if I pronounce it incorrectly but Killian Murphy or Cillian Murphy Uh, Cillian Murphy Murphy is Scarecrow uh he was more in the first film but still it, just just a list of actors that are just amazing um and and like the story just you don't really know like we have the Joker and he's he's essentially manipulating the mob and everyone to his whim because he's he's doing everything the as a as a plan even though he says he doesn't have a plan it's clear that that's not necessarily the case. Or maybe it isn't. Maybe he's just going about it whim by whim. From the interrogation scene to the first bank heist scene, which is essentially the quintessential reason why, you know, myself, Stephen, and, and and Peyton uh, <laughs> would do bank heists in, in Grand Theft Auto 4. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's just, I think me and... Nick, you and I saw this movie together for the first time. No. No, no, Dark Knight no, Rises. No. Dark no, that Knight was Rises the- is when we saw together, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we saw all the three of the Dark Knight films, this being, in my opinion, the best one. Um, it's just an overall masterpiece. Other things about the film that I want to mention, and I'll just keep it... Actually, you know what? Let's keep it short. I'll make any arguments I need to make if someone goes against it, but... That's all I'll say for now.
2: Where is she? Where is she? Where is she?
0: (laughs) Well, depending on the time, she could be in one place or several. Where? Then he tells her the opposite direction he knew he would go. Uh, Such a good film.
1: Is it the best Nolan film, though?
0: uh-huh that's a highly debated term i would say it has the best nolan characters of all of his films with with the joker
3: yeah. that's an arguable point i mean it does have really really fucking awesome cast
1: yeah I yeah all right it does so all still. right Look on my works, you mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. This poem is attributed to Breaking Bad and Heisenberg, but for the purpose of this selection, I believe it also suits There Will Be Blood. A tale of an old of, of a soon to be oil, oil, oil baron from California who basically takes the mantle of Daniel Plain Plainview, I believe that's his name. Mm-hmm. um And he is Daniel Day Lewis in this film is just unfucking believable. He gives the performance of a lifetime, and you can argue that every film he does, he gives the performance of a lifetime, but. There Will Be Blood is just this remarkable look into not necessarily a villain and not necessarily an anti-hero, but of a person who's sort of selfish urge to lead and manipulate and coerce and just break his way through to success. And creating a legacy that will ultimately disown him and forget about him when when all is said and done. Um, starring, write a song alongside him, Paul Dano, who also follows a similar path in regards to being this sort of like a pastor. And he basically sees Plainview as the evil man that he is or that he claims to be. And they have this back and forth tug of war of moral alignments and how one side uses religion, the other side uses commerce and business. And it's just so fucking fascinating how it's all interplayed and interweaved with both the technical craft of the editing, uh, the runtime, um, and basically each of the locations that, that were shot. Um, to portray that oil barren lifestyle being a minor uh, during the that economic boom to bring about the economic prosperity that we now have it's it's really just one of the most powerful films i've ever seen and i think it's just it's just going to stand the test of, of time, n- no matter from what perspective you decide to tackle it from. And one of the final scenes in the film ultimately nails it for me. The iconic "I would drink from your milkshake" yep. uh, battle between him and Paul Dano's character, and it's just it's just remarkable to be honest. I, I can't sp- I, I could keep going on and on, but because of time, that's my second pick. It's a it's a
2: good solid pick right there. Yeah.
1: Definitely recommend it.
2: Okay. Um my number 2 pick is the uh my second of the same director choice. Um so Ridley Scott again and this is uh Alien. Um it another sci-fi but also horror. Esque movie. Um, It follows a group of. I guess like engineers slash miners. um, That are out in the distant galaxies. um, Going to these different colony planets and stuff. And on their way back heading towards Earth. They get a distress call from. A beacon that's like a distress from from one of the colonies. So they go to check it out. And there's this giant um alien vessel they go down to the planet and they start looking around and they find these giant eggs and one of the eggs opens up latches on to one of the characters uh faces and that kind of starts the fun of the movie um sigourney weaver is the main um is the main character she plays Ripley? Um, it, it's the way that it is shot and kind of gives you a claustrophobic feel to it because once the alien that has been kind of impregnated inside of the um uh, John Hurtz character Kane, um, he he has a um, a really bad time at dinner time. I won't, I won't spoil it for anybody that hasn't seen the movie outside of this group. Cause I'm pretty sure we all have seen it. Um, and this little alien goes off into the, the bowels of their giant ship that they are on. And this small group of humans have to try to outsmart it and try to fight it. Um, which ultimately is kind of like, they're just, you know, lambs to the slaughter. Um, and so, and it, this was the first movie that kind of sparked um, a group of really good sequels. Um, it also had inner crossings with Predator down the road and a couple of other, um, if I remember correctly, a couple of other sci fi monsters too. Um, great use of the way that it is shot. Um, like I said, some of the shots are very dark tight corridors of the ship and stuff. And you have this giant seven foot alien that's literally ripping people to pieces. And it makes you really feel like if, if you were in that situation, it makes you feel hopeless. And, um, yeah, that's my, uh, number two pick.
3: Love that movie.
2: It's a really good one. now yeah, They even
3: have a real, uh, game of alien too.
0: Yeah. Alien isolation.
3: Yep, yeah, Jesus yeah, Christ. That's, <laughs> that's a fun one, right there, guys. Yep. Um, my next pick, I will preface with a quote: "The better for a man to have chosen evil than to have good imposed upon him." My pick is a Clockwork Orange. Um, this is. Uh, this is probably another kind of cult classic film in my opinion it's not really wildly uh, widely known um, but essentially it involves uh, a man who has like basically a gang of of other delinquents uh, they they go about raping committing theft and they coined what they've what their actions to be as ultra violence and uh one of the uh one of the most kind of quirky things about him is that he's obsessed with classical music, uh, especially Beethoven. Um, He uh, constantly references his, his love for the ninth symphony by Beethoven. And uh, this, this goes back to being, I think it was in the seventies, but uh, at the time it was kind of like the setting was a futuristic uh, Britain. And, um, Eventually he goes on another one of his little sprees and he gets caught and the government decides because of his past like criminal records and stuff that he would be a great candidate for this psychological rehabilitation technique that they've been working on where they basically brainwash and indoctrinate him and condition him to be averse, uh, averse to uh, violence And rape and anything that's bad, essentially, to the point where, like, he will physically recoil or even vomit. And um, one of the main themes that I think the movie's trying to drive home to us is they forced him to be good to where he no longer had a choice of being bad. And so is it – the question is, is it like the the quote I actually posed to us earlier, is that – is that necessarily a good thing to do to somebody to admit them of all choice of, of anything wrong. And, uh, it's basically a dystopian kind of vibe. Um, eventually he does try to commit and commit another act of violence because he thinks he he's gotten, he's freed himself. And, and it was very disturbing to see how, how it tortured him. Uh, to, to even try to think about doing it it's it's a really weird film i think it's very w- much much worth a watch because of uh the timeline that it was made back in the 70s and they're already like you know it, this kind of was around the time of 1984 and uh yeah and yeah. i Have new world so there's a lot of dystopian literature and uh adaptations coming out And if you want to really get a sense of a really good depiction of it, I think A Clockwork Orange is an excellent take on it. It, Just like I said, though, it is kind of disturbing. Uh, There's certain parts where you'll kind of go, ah, what's going on here? But overall, I think it's worth a watch.
0: That's an understatement.
3: Yeah, yeah. What's going on (laughs) It was pretty powerful for me, though, and that's why I picked it.
0: It's a great film. Nice. That's a really good one. Singing in the rain. So, how how much do you guys like Star Wars? Because uh, my next pick is, I I did I did make a change, a last minute change. Um, so for my list, I picked. Nothing to Star Wars related at all. Um, my pick is Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Uh, and I know that someone has some Star Wars on here, but we'll talk about that when it's their turn. I forgot who put it up, to be honest. Uh, but the the long and the short of it is Return of the King is the capstone to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Peter Jackson's baby and it it encompasses the all the epic parts of Gladiator and all the other films we talked about today take it to the 11th level and it's it I think when it comes to book adaptations versus their films most people say that oh the books are or better. I would hesitate to say all of the Lord of the Rings films are better than the books. And whether it's Vigo Mortensen's role in this film or I, I, I think I think Elijah Wood and like, you know, Frodo, his whole uh storyline is is very powerful as well. But I think this film is where we get some serious Vigo uh Vigo parts because when he's playing Aragorn I think he's probably one of my favorite characters if not my favorite character in the entire series most people can relate to that of course Gandalf gets top prize but second is probably Aragorn and they also came out with extended editions of these films um, I'm not sure was it the one of the first was it one of the first movies to do extended films I can't recall. I don't recall any other films really doing extended versions of these films just because they had so much more to to offer. But I'm going to list up a few things that are going to spoil some parts of this movie. You should have already seen it if you came to this podcast. Uh, The long and the short of it is stuff from this movie. Saruman's death. If you haven't seen the extended edition, it's pretty badass. Um, (laughs) <laughs> he gets impaled on his own, like war tools, and then we get the whole witch king, which who it's a character introduced in the fifth film. I mean, technically, this character version of this character is introduced in this film, but you also get it's it's the it's the backstory of this is the ring wraith that stabbed Frodo. On top of um, that camp they had in the first film, bringing it all the way around to, the, and he's the most powerful of the ring race. And they call him the Witch King because he can't be killed, essentially, by men. Um, and then there's a whole scene about that with him, on, He his dragon gets killed, and it's a huge battle there in the middle of the biggest battle of Battle of Minas Tirith which is the whole thing of the whole movie is leading towards so it's just all these crazy parts then there's the whole underground with the ghosts and it's aragorn gimli and legolas trying to convince these damned beings to fulfill their debt that they that betrayed the uh the the gondor the the kingdom of gondor for and for them to actually uphold their oath then we have a you know gandalf and denethor that whole back and forth uh denethor being the crazy madman um oh that actor was just in the boys as well the new the last one of the last episodes he plays uh Um, Billy Butcher's dad which I think is funny because of course Billy Butcher is the same guy who's uh, the head of the legion in um, the Rohan the the Rohan (laughs) so it's like not not the king of Rohan but the uh, the oh god what's his name in the fucking movie Theoden's not Theoden it's the other act the other character you guys know what I'm talking about yeah, yeah. Then we have the huge battle at Minas Tirith, whether it's the freaking elephants, or it's the ridiculous counting of kills that they bring back from Helm's Deep with Legolas and Gimli saying what you know how many people they've killed. <laughs> that only that still only counts as one when he kills the <laughs> elephant. <laughs> I mean, there's comedy, there's action, there's horror when the spider nests with Shelob which is probably one of the most creepiest-ass spiders I think I've ever seen in a film. Uh, and then, of course, one of my favorite parts um, is the suicide run with uh, Faramir and his his whole battalion trying to take back uh, Osgiliath, and they get absolutely murdered, except for Faramir does not die. Uh, he is merely... Knocked out by some sort of poison or just being by trauma, um, and the, the song that uh, oh Pippin does is is chills every time I hear it. Simply amazing. I, there's so much I could say about this movie. I'm gonna shut up. And then there's the Black Gate scene where it's just for Frodo and they charge and it's fucking great. I could say so much. It speaks for itself. I'll I'll leave it there.
1: for my number top pick there is no sun natural light died along with the people's memory of it now the lights have lives of their own they've learned to live in such soothing voices to feel and to love more than a human ever could the sky itself is a myth there's only tall buildings and taller buildings Protruding out from the pervasive fog like the tail of a slumbering monster. Is that why everyone speaks in whispers? To not awaken it? To live under constant fear and paranoia. Welcome to Los Angeles. Outside the city limits, tangerine dust suspended midair as if a world engulfed in flames. Mountains that, upon closer inspection, are just huge apocalyptic piles of trash, forgotten machines erased memories. We had the wailings of giants in Sicario, here in the land of non-living, where the air smells of nothing but rust. Banshees scream directly at our faces. The intervals are filled with something even more nerve-wracking. Absolute fucking silence, even at the presence of Elvis Presley. Think about it. It really is the end of the world. Blade Runner 2049 is, in my opinion, and it's in my opinion, I think the greatest sequel ever made. It it single-handedly improves the first film in a way that I don't think a previous sequel has. Um, and it speaks so much volumes to the care and attention that the director Denis made when he decided to embark on this sort of like sci-fi journey of just taking that mantle of saving science fiction, at least in terms of Hollywood. And just like its predecessor, Blade Runner 2049 bombed in the box office to no one's surprise. Um, And Harrison Ford comes back as Deckard to provide one of the last uh, best performances of his career. Um, And when I came out of the movie theater, I, I really, This movie struck my core in a way that very, very few films have. And it's a very deep, reflective, contemplative film about what it means to, it's not even what it means to be human. It's about what we do with that humanity is, is what counts. And at the end of the day, the story is about a nobody doing something special for a somebody. And that's why I chose Blade Runner 2049 as my top, as my top pick or my final pick in the list. Is
0: so that the second movie from Danny Villeneuve that we have on, uh, out here?
1: Yep. Danny. Yeah, yep. Danny. Denis. Denis.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, mine's going to be real quick and simple here for my top number one pick. And it ultimately has to do with one phrase and one phrase only. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. 1977 the original star wars I, th- that's it mic drop I, I don't really have to go any further <laughs>
1: well to follow that up <laughs> new home. oh my god uh, well <laughs> well then
2: do so... we just give you the trophy now <laughs>
3: <laughs> well to follow that up the finale pick for this Hollywood real is Star Wars: The empire strikes back. We all know that iconic quote. Um, I do have a fun fact for you. I don't know uh, if you already knew this, but apparently uh, in the script, uh, George Lucas had kept it secret. That line and was originally replaced with Obi-Wan killed Luke's father. And uh, whenever the line was dropped on on uh production everybody was equally surprised so you can only imagine how much that one's been crazy i actually recently got to watch this in theaters on wednesday and i can only imagine the hype that they must have felt back then in the 80s to can, watch this is uh is there any chance any the mic quickly
0: yep sorry it's, right. it's just the, the 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 i think you should be good now Or not? <laughs> just slight Uh-oh. technical issues. Um, I think his <laughs> mic may have completely fucked up. Okay, wait. Hello.
3: Is it working? Yes. Oh, there we go. All right. Do I need to repeat that
0: whole segment again? No, no, no. To just continue.
3: Uh, I think Empire Strikes Back really hits home for me. Um, I think it's my favorite out of all of the Star Wars films because of how much surprise I think I was. I was hit by by um, what happened in it, and I think that also that probably stirred a lot of a lot of uh, ways. Films were film in general had plot twists that were to succeed it, um, but also you know we as the audience have been so so polarized with light versus dark. Than to just hit get hit with the emotional trauma that our light hero is actually going to have to come to grips to combat and and ultimately bring down his his father who's fallen to the dark side is uh, it was just emotionally you know powerful um, but I mean like like Nick I don't think there's many much more to be said Empire speaks for itself the movie's a mic drop
0: course so that's our list um it is the list of 20 movies we think that should be well enough equipped to describe some of the best films of all time of course everyone 40 movies. For, did i not say 40 what did i say 20
1: yeah, you said twenty, but Sorry, it will 40. come down to twenty as we get closer to the tournament bracket. Right,
0: um, there's gonna be times where you might be like, it's it, it could be some of our own against their own. Could be Gladiator versus Return of the King. Could be There Will Be Blood versus Blade Runner twenty forty nine. <laughs> it could be There Will Be Blood against The Dark Knight. Um, yeah lots of different different ways that this could go but yeah in the next episode we'll be doing the tournament bracket and uh we'll finish it out i believe in that next episode if i'm not mistaken but keep in mind for next time uh we're going to be doing this probably next week and we'll release the episode right after it's going to be a fight uh it's going to be a fight better bring your your mouth guards because there's going to be some blood Lots of blood. This is where the fun begins. <laughs> Any last comments, ladies and gentlemen? Looking forward to the grudge match.
3: Oh, yes. your fucking movies suck. Okay. The last Jedi
1: is better than Empire. Oh I, uh, uh,
2: I just want to make
3: the last Jedi's on the list.
2: I just want to make a quick reference. You stole my number one pick. Um just, just <laughs> kind of. I had to. Add had to.
0: Uh, is that good? Princess Bride for the win. Uh, okay. So, good luck, gentlemen. I know this whole next week we're going to use... We're going to come up with uh, mudslinging tactics about how to bring down each other's films and movies. Good luck. Um, but in the end of it, it might be some of our own movies going against our own movies. That's where it becomes crazy. And of course... As previously mentioned in one of the past films that we were discussing, it could come down to a coin flip. So, thank you so much for listening. Breath
3: of the going to take it.
0: Huh?
3: Of the Wild's going to take it. Watch.
0: Breath of the Wild's going to oh, take it. Oh, you
1: know it. You fucking know it, man. It's a bold. Yeah, statement. Yeah, Breath of the Wild takes it.
0: <laughs> They're referencing the last time we did this shit. Um <laughs> Well, thanks so much everybody. Any anything else you guys want to say? I'll take that as a no. All right. (laughs) Have a great rest of your evening. (laughs) Bye-bye.